This is the Healthcare Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. No industry, including sick care, can be fixed from inside. For every one hour that they spend on patient care, they're spending up to two hours on EHR data entry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Market Scale Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode. If you want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure you're heading to our website, marketscale.com slash industries. And there you'll find plenty of articles, podcasts, and video content from the healthcare industry and more. So for today's episode, we're taking a look at waste in the American healthcare system. A recent October 2019 study in uh, JAMA by Dr. William Schrank showed that waste makes up almost a quarter, 25% of U.S. healthcare spending, which when quantified can reach almost $935 billion by some estimates. So when we look at that reality, how does this impact the system as a whole? And what are some potential solutions to addressing that wasteful spending? Well, we're speaking to both of those major questions today with our guest, Jason Melton, CEO of Second MD, who's looking to combat waste in our healthcare system through MedTech. Jason, welcome. Great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me, Daniel. Absolutely. Looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so that recent study, um, you know, I came across it recently. It had some stark numbers and it definitely caught me by surprise. How does that stack up to previous studies um, that have, uh, you know, looked at the same thing? Um, has healthcare waste become a worse issue for the system? Um, has it improved over the last several years? You know, what is the current state, I guess, of uh, wasteful spending in healthcare? Yeah, I think it's been a problem that's been around for decades, unfortunately. It has gotten a little bit better if you just look at the results of that study at close to 25% previous studies, uh, fairly well known in the uh, healthcare industry that I'm involved in, are where that 30% of healthcare is wasted on unnecessary or ineffective care and just waste in the system. I've actually spoken to the leaders of some of the large um, national health plans in the U.S., who've uh, estimated, you know, they've told me that it's closer to 40 percent. So I think 25 percent uh, still is just, uh, you know, a remarkable number that needs to be addressed. Uh, but whether it's 25 or 30 percent, um, you know, it, there's it's something that uh, that we can all focus on. I've been doing a lot of conversations about um, spending for our healthcare system in the past couple weeks. I feel like it has. Uh, maybe because we're in a political season and we're talking about it a lot um, at the national stage, I feel like it's just on a lot of people's minds. So it's just been flowing through MarketScale's content recently. Um, and, you know, a lot of these conversations about how can we fix spending issues uh, in our healthcare system, you know, they're just one piece of a broader puzzle. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that broader puzzle. How does the fact that we spend more than any other developed nation play into this wasteful spending dynamic when it comes to our healthcare? When much of the overspending also comes from things like um, a bureaucracy of managing thousands of insurance plans, high premiums, uh, high out-of-pocket expenses, highest drug prices in the world. You know, there are there are a lot of um, 
a lot of different factors that go into those high costs for U.S. healthcare. So where does tackling wasteful health care and health care spending fit into that broader dynamic of spending the most for health care of modern developed nations? Well, I think there's a lot that we can do. America has some of the best physicians and really the best health systems in the world, but there's 5% of the people that are driving 50 plus percent of the cost. And those people are often suffering from not being able to get the right diagnosis or undergoing unnecessary or overly aggressive, ineffective care. And, uh, and I think that is a big part of it's not just the bureaucracy with uh, the number of health plans and those things are a problem. But what we see uh, with our expert medical opinion business is that when people have a second and B consult, these are folks who have already seen a physician and they're coming to us for uh, an expert second opinion. And that uh, in those cases, 82% of our consults result in a change in the treatment plan. That means four out of five people were not on the best path before their second and B consult. Uh, more than a quarter of them weren't even properly diagnosed. And we see over 30% of the people who've been told that they need to have surgery uh, wind up voluntarily canceling their surgery after they speak to an independent expert specialist, not because they were told they couldn't have it, but because they spoke to uh, someone very knowledgeable about their specific situation who uh, was independent and didn't have any uh, gain uh, depending on what treatment they, they uh, pursued, and they realized that to cancel that surgery was the best thing for them. Uh, you know, Some of the stats that we see, for example, in spine surgery is that if you're in back pain in America, you are five to six times more likely to have surgery than if you're in the UK. And uh, there's not a great uh, reason, uh, way to make sense of that other than just the way that our healthcare system has been built up. You know, doctors may make uh, a few hundred dollars to speak to you for half an hour or a few thousand dollars to in- inject you or, you know, $15,000 to cut on you. That's just the way that the, the system has been set up to date. I think there's a lot of progress being made with accountable care organizations and other health systems that are taking on risk and and really looking at just the quality of the outcomes and not procedure volume, but there's still a long ways to go there. That's interesting. So how do you think that dynamic where patients are overprescribed or, uh, you know, recommended a surgery or a procedure that is uh, basically too much for their current situation and and might be a, an overreach or just over care, right? How does that play into um, some of the other dynamics that I mentioned earlier? Uh, you know, d- does the fact that um, you know folks are having to deal with uh, some of the bureaucracy of their health plan and what is covered and what isn't covered, or um, uh, you know, based on how expensive the care can be for people, does that play into this dynamic where people are um, basically mistreated with their health care? You know, I think there is uh, situations across America where access to high quality health care can be an issue. And as a result, there's uh, there's a deferred, you know, uh, up you know, just keeping up with uh, what needs to be done in terms of regular checkups and and visits. I think we're going to see that with what's going on right now. There are a number of people, uh, certainly there's a great and appropriate focus on the COVID-19 situation, but there are a whole lot of other people that have had their therapies and treatments interrupted 
because the healthcare system is shut down or they don't want them coming in in person. And uh, as a result, some of those have found ways to get that care um, virtually, but others are just really deferring that. And, and I think that will, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see it, the results of that uh, in the coming months and years. But I'll give you an example. Uh, about two years ago, I actually nearly died in a ski accident. I was in Colorado and I went over the edge of a, of a run and did a, a head plant into a hard pack catwalk 15 feet below. And, and I uh, shattered my helmet, shattered my wrist, but I also broke my spine right at the base of my skull. Uh, the C2 broke that in half. And they call that the hangman's fracture because it's what they intentionally try to break when they hang you rather than, um, you know, so you don't suffocate um, and, and it can kill you quickly. I was unconscious. Fortunately, I was alive and, and didn't have any nerve damage, but they got me off the mountain, took me to the Aspen Valley Hospital, figured out how bad it was, and then put me on a helicopter and life-flighted me to a, a top trauma center in Denver. They, uh, I was seen by a great orthopedic team. It's the team that deals with the Denver Broncos, the Colorado Avalanche, and they did a good job of setting my wrist. But when the, the neurosurgeon came in, he spent literally one minute in my room, and he said, uh, your head is not connected to your body by your spine anymore. One small bump and we could sever your spinal cord and you could be paralyzed or dead. So we need to stabilize your neck and we're going to do a C1, C2 fusion tomorrow. And that was it. He walked out. This was nine o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I was in the ICU and I said, well, I want to have a second of consult first. And he said, well, you better be fast because you're in critical condition and we need to stabilize your neck uh, soon. So the surgery was scheduled for 12 o'clock the next day. Uh, our team went to work, got all the medical records, and uh, loaded them up into our system. At 10.30 the next morning, I had a 30-minute video consult through our app with, uh, with a great independent neurosurgeon while I was just uh, lying flat on my hospital bed. And the neurosurgeon with Second and B was able to show me not only my own imaging and explain where the break was and why it was significant, but was also able to show me diagrams of the C1, C2 fusion that the neurosurgeon wanted to do. And he said, this, uh, it has a high success rate for stabilizing your neck, but if you do this, you will lose 50% of the rotation of your head for the rest of your life. And there's a better way. We can go in through the front with a single screw and you will have a full recovery. And uh, I said, well, I want to do that. So I got the neuro neurosurgeon from, from Denver to listen in. And uh, he spoke with, with the second MD expert and said, you know what, I, I agree with you. That, that probably is what's best for you. The problem is we don't really know how to do it. You're critical, can't really be moved. So we'd rather just do the fusion and we need to do it in the morning. So I said, okay, well, hold the table for plan B, second MD. Is there anybody else who knows how to do this, uh, this other surgery? And uh, we triangulated and quickly found that there was one great expert in uh, the Colorado area who could do this and do it well. And we vetted his credentials, got a hold of him, and he agreed to do that surgery the next morning at his hospital, which was 30 minutes away. Got me transferred there. I did the surgery the next morning. Uh, flew home two days later. I was walking up seven flights of stairs to go to work uh, that same week. And I've now had a full recovery. So that's great from a quality of life perspective, but it also saved our health plan $100,000. And that's the, the point of the story as it relates to the waste. The, the C1-C2 fusion that the neurosurgeon wanted to do would have passed any prior authorization. It was an appropriate standard of care, but it was overly aggressive for what was needed. And it cost literally $100,000 more than the, uh, the procedure they did at the front of my neck. Hmm. Wow. So... Is that an example of human error where, you know, a physician getting that second set of expert eyes, 
basically collaborated on the best care. Uh, is there any other factor that you think played into that initial diagnosis that maybe wasn't the best option for you? Uh, and then how do you think that reflects uh, some of the situations that other people face where they're given an option for surgery or for medication and uh, you know they're unsure if that is the right option for them? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, another study that we've seen by the National Institute of Health has said that the average doctor in America is 17 years behind the latest research. And that's, that's hard to uh, understand uh, or believe even, but we know that medical knowledge is doubling every two to three years. 40, 50% of a, a physician's time is spent on administration. It's just very difficult for a doctor to keep up to date with the latest therapies and, and uh, treatment protocols. And as a result, the, uh, you know, the people all across the country with the same condition can get very different care depending on their zip code and who their doctor is. And, uh, you know, so I think the ability for doctors to stay up to date and to collaborate with other doctors is something that technology can play a big part in. And uh, that's certainly what we devote our time to. So if you had to uh, define what incorrect or unnecessary care looks like, uh, how would you define that? Because I feel like it is such a flexible thing. Uh, It can be difficult to sometimes lock down exactly like, okay, this kind of uh, treatment or this advice is going to be incorrect or unnecessary. Um, Is it that subjective? Is there any kind of objective analysis you can give to that? Or is it really a case-by-case basis? You know, I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, There are situations, uh, you'll see a lot of studies that say uh, stents in, uh, in the heart are uh, very unnecessary in, in a, a lot of instances. And uh, we have cardiology specialists on our panel that say, you know, uh, oftentimes people are getting stents in when, when, uh, when they shouldn't be. They're only 30 to 50% blocked, and there's other ways to, uh, to deal with that situation rather than put in a stent, and they're going to have to be on statins for the rest of their life, for example. So that's something that's maybe more uh, widespread. I'll give you two other just personal examples. My wife right now is undergoing treatment for stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and uh, her doctor was um, was out of pocket on her own medical issue. And we saw another, uh, you know, a qualified oncologist at this great hospital who was also a professor in that department, but not focused on this subspecialty. And uh, and she was recommending a certain therapy that my wife was literally about to start. And uh, with Second and B, we were able to connect with uh, with her, you know, initial physician who looked at that treatment plan literally the day before her infusions were going to start and disagreed with it totally and said, "You're going to see no benefit from that. We're not going to do that. Let's do th- this other thing." And it turns out she would have been on that other program for about a month. Not only would that have had some side effects for her, but it would have cost well over a hundred thousand uh, dollars of just waste. You know, another example, uh, unfortunately, I lost my mom a couple of years ago to cancer. She had uh, a stage four um, uh, uterine cancer that had metastasized in the lungs, and her treatments for that ultimately led her to have acute myeloid leukemia, which, uh, you know, was a type of blood cancer, and the combination of the two was was very difficult, and the doctors at the hospital where she was, and this was uh, one of the top uh, cancer centers in the world, they said, you know, we really need to put you essentially in this glass box for four weeks while we try to to deal with this uh, leukemia. And 
we didn't, uh, towards the end of that, uh, that wound up being the last four good weeks of her life, right at the end of, of her stay at that hospital, I was at a conference out in California where I, I heard a palliative care specialist give a great talk and said, you know, Americans, um, 75% said they want to die in their bed. Only 25% do. As doctors, we view death as a failure when it's really a matter of, you know, we're all going to die. And it's just a question of when you have a terminal illness, how do you, you know, what is the best path forward and how do you want to uh, live out those remaining months or years? And what we see, like in cancer cases, um, I think it's over 30%, 40% of that care is provided in the last month of someone's life that has no benefit to extending their life or even the quality of it. And I came back from that conference and I thought, I've got to let my mom speak with a palliative care specialist. We got one scheduled, but she died that morning and uh, it wound up being the last four good weeks of her life. Had we, uh, and that just gave me a real passion for helping people in that situation, uh, you know, have a different voice and just speak to somebody who can walk them through, walk them through uh, what they're dealing with and help them make um, the best decision for them. I'm sure that had we done that, we would not have chosen to put my mom in that glass box uh, at that hospital for those last four weeks. That would have been different for us. It also would have saved more than a quarter million dollars uh, wow. from her health plan. Yeah, and I mean, I think that also speaks to, and you know, obviously, my condolences um, for the loss of your mother. Um, you. But I think that entire experience also speaks to the need for continued education in um, the healthcare industry. I mean, like you said, uh, basically, medical knowledge is improving uh, at a rapid pace, and I think you can almost compare it to folks that graduate with engineering or data science degrees, they go into the workforce and maybe, you know, two years into their career, uh, their experience is already dated. Something is new, something is improved. And now it's like, okay, well, you got to either reteach yourself or you're going to start to um, lose your economic value in this industry. Now with healthcare, it's a little different, obviously, because it's not just about economic value. It's clearly about, um, you know, protecting, saving, and treating lives. Uh, but that idea of having to maintain up-to-date knowledge consistently, I, I think is an essential piece of this conversation of making sure that we reduce wasteful uh, spending in healthcare. Do you find that continued education in healthcare couples with this idea of bringing in a second perspective, making sure that, you know, you get the most well-rounded assessment of your needs before acting on any kind of uh, surgery or medication. Uh, is that something that healthcare professionals should be focusing on, that the industry should be focusing on? Um, you know, how, how can you advocate for that as part of the solution as well? Yeah, another great question. And I think to some extent it's happening naturally. Uh, the younger generations are more used to questioning things, to using technology, to learning, uh, you know, different perspectives on their situation, uh, virtually as well as in person. And so we're seeing more and more people question uh, what's going on with them and the best way to treat it. From a physician perspective, we, uh, you know, we have a longer-term vision of being able to enable every physician in this country and then around the world to have at their fingertips the latest. Uh, specific information for that case to, to help them make the same decision that they would if they were really an expert in that field. And there's a you know a lot to to work through to get to that point. But I think everybody uh, recognizes that 
the, this unnecessary care, overly aggressive care is something that we need to, to uh, that we can improve upon and that it's better for everyone in the system. These are dollars that could be more appropriately utilized to advance medicine even further, to find uh, you know, new therapies for cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and other things. And so there's, there's a, and it's also a situation that uh, just about every employer in the country are, you know, they're seeing their healthcare costs uh, rise every year and, uh, and it, it, it's very difficult on those businesses. So we're, you know, we have a very diverse client base of companies all across the country, really in every industry, blue collar, white collar, uh, you know, high populations of male, female, young, old, and everywhere that we, that we provide our services, we see the thing, same thing. It's 5% of those, the, the workforce is driving 50% of the cost. So how, uh, you know, how do we help those people know what they're dealing with and make the best decisions for themselves? And it's not just something that employers are focused on, and it's been great that they are, but that has led to uh, many of the national and regional health plans uh, have you know, partnered with us to find this solution as well. Well, let's pivot now and uh, end the conversation with more of a focus on Second MD specifically. So Second MD's approach to solving this problem is in med tech. And that's specifically with connecting key patients to the right treatment for them. So basically scaling up uh, that experience of yours where you had um, third-party consultation that then informed and bettered your care, taking that and making it a platform that benefits not only physicians but patients as well. Break down that service and how it actually works in practice. How does it fit into regular primary care? Sure. So we stay focused on specialists. So we have a panel of over 800 of the top medical specialists in the country across every specialty and subspecialty, whether that's autism all the way to Zika and everything in between. And I described a moment ago the types of clients that we work with. Let's say you are an employee or a dependent for one of our our client companies, and uh, maybe you've received a communication digitally or at home that you have access to the service. You, um, you maybe have some new symptoms, you go see a doctor in person and, and uh, they diagnose you, they, uh, let's say that you have knee pain and, and they tell you that you need to have uh, a knee surgery. And either, there, there's a couple ways people can get connected with our service, either they have seen that they have access to it and they proactively reach out to us. We also get claims data from a number of our health plan clients and we run it through our own uh, algorithm to identify people on the pathway to a high cost, high impact event. And we, in those cases, can reach out to them, remind them that they have access to this service at the time of their need. And uh, so we, we get started. They will connect with one of our nurse case managers who are gonna understand what's been going on, what tests have been run, what your doctors have said, what reports are there. We then send you a medical records release of information form electronically. Uh, we can do that by uh, you know a hard copy if needed. And you simply just, uh, sign that release of information with your finger. It takes a couple of seconds. Uh, then we get we have the authority to go get all your medical records for you on your behalf, which we do remarkably uh, well and, and quickly. We digitize those, organize them, load them up in our system. At the same time, we're matching you with uh, an expert specialist who can really help you understand what's going on with your specific need. We give a choice of two specialists. And often um, someone will say, well, this person's from 
Oregon. That's where I grew up. So I want to uh, talk to him or, you know, they both look great. I don't care. And then uh, so we, we select a specialist for them. They're scheduled. Uh, it's a video consult done through our app. Um, and that is uh, scheduled in 20 minute increments. They average 30 minutes in length uh, where you can ask every question that you have. The doctor can ask you other questions that may not have been covered in the medical records and you get a very informed uh, you know, game plan about what to take back to your treating physician and, uh, and how to move forward with that. Then we follow that up with a written consult summary uh, that's written by the specialist. Here's what we spoke about. Here's what I recommend, et cetera. And then uh, afterwards, we follow up with our nurse case managers to make sure that they have everything they need. If they need to go see a new doctor, uh, we can help uh, you know, recommend the right specialist, make and expedite those appointments, transfer the medical records, et cetera, just to help make sure that they're uh, on the right path and get the high quality outcome uh, as best they can. It sounds like one of the greatest assets that Second MD offers is that network of experienced physicians and uh, medical experts. How did you go about building that network and getting those doctors and healthcare providers on board? What was your B two B strategy there for selling them on the value of it and getting them integrated? Yeah, it was really hard when Second MD was founded back in 2011. This was before FaceTime, and the idea of seeing and speaking to a doctor by video was really unheard of at the time. Our founder Phillips. Um, his daughter, his third child, had had a stroke after birth and was paralyzed on the right side of her body, and it was devastating for them. The first doctor said they couldn't help. The next doctor said, uh, you know, your daughter will never walk or talk. Uh, took several months of waiting time to, to see other doctors in person, and Clint just realized there was a better way through technology to connect people to top doctors so that they can get the answers they needed for their own family. And that was how Second MD was born. But initially, uh, uh, Clint took that business plan to some of the, uh, the people that he knew in, in Aspen, Colorado, and they, they said, we don't know if this will work, but we think this would be great for healthcare, great for our country. We like it for our own families, so uh, let's go solve it. But the, one of the first questions was, how are you going to get the top doctors in the country, uh, the most in-demand physicians, to actually give you their time? And it was really difficult. We tried 100 different ways and failed 100 different ways of getting them on board. And uh, ultimately, we, f we figured out um, how, to, how to explain what we were doing and why it was best for them. And, uh, and that enabled us to sign up initially our, our first several doctors, several dozen, and then ultimately to the 800 that we have now. And what we found was that first off, matching people, matching uh, specialists with people that are right in the sweet spot of their life's work. Uh, they're intellectually interested in these cases. It's what they got into medicine to practice. Uh, you know, that is a very important thing. We also, with our technology platform and our care management services, make it incredibly easy for them. Wherever they, they are in the world, let's say it's nine o'clock at night, they put their kids to bed, they simply open up their laptop, all the medical records are there. They have a 20, 30 minute conversation directly with the member, type up their, their uh, summary notes of that. And there's no billing or paperwork they have to do. It's all logged in, in our system and we make it really easy for them. And then thirdly, we do pay them very well and we pay them quickly. They do a consult on a Wednesday, the money's in their account on Friday, for example. So um, those are some of the ways that we've been able to build this great network of expert specialists. And um, I'll give you one quick anecdote. I was in Boston recently with uh, a gentleman who wanted to check out uh, you know, what we were saying and whether we were for real. And so he spoke to his brother, who is a, a top oncologist and a professor at Harvard um, and Dana-Farber, 
And uh, he said, have you heard of Second MD? He said, oh, I love Second MD. I've done many consults uh, with them. I wish I could do more. Uh, they make it so easy, and, and these cases are fascinating. And uh, this gentleman that I was speaking to said, that tells me a lot because my brother has worked 100 hours for as long as I can remember him, and he doesn't need any more money. So if you didn't make this really smooth and easy for him, and if he wasn't uh, just really interested in these cases, there's no way he'd be spending his time on it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, when the when the value of it is beyond a monetary one, I think that's when it really starts to speak to um, the importance of the service. What we find is, uh, again, we, we schedule these consults in 20-minute increments, and there's time, they spend about 47 minutes on average per case because uh, they review the records beforehand, they type up their executive you know, their consult summary on the back end. But some of these consults will last well over an hour if it's a complex case. And, you know, often the specialists will come back and, and ask for more money. But but other times they just said, you know, I, I just really loved providing um, this guidance to this individual. And so they do that. Uh, uh, you know, we have other specialists that have been prohibited uh, by their primary place of work from accepting other money. And they will provide consults uh, through Second MD and ask us to donate the, the proceeds to charity. They just do it because they really love helping people. Another critically important aspect to launching a new medtech platform is also the safety of sensitive medical information on your service. How has Second MD approached that aspect of creating a new digital platform and do you find this to be a consistent challenge not only for second md but for medtech companies dealing with some of the sensitive information you know i think it's a very important issue we take the privacy of our clients information incredibly seriously and we treat it like we would our own family members information and uh, as a result from the very beginning we've put in place a uh, very robust uh, security measures to protect privacy and security of information and that has led us to pass very intensive and scrutinized security reviews by some of the largest and most heavily regulated employers in the country as well as the largest uh, national health plans in the country that take this stuff very seriously. We have um, gotten a couple of certifications that are very, uh, I guess, recognizable in the industry. One is SOC 2 Type 2 and another is High Trust and those are really the two gold standards for uh, showing that your organization has taken all the steps that can be taken to protect information. So it's something that uh, we wouldn't have been able to grow and service the number of people that, that we service now had we not taken that very seriously from the beginning. So, oh, oh no, yeah, go, go, go ahead. But it is a challenge. I'm sorry. It, it, it is a challenge for younger companies. But I think it's, an, it's a necessary one. And I say it's a challenge because these certifications can often take very long to get. We actually completed our high trust certification uh, in, uh, in about nine months. And I'm told it normally takes about two years. And you, if you think about it, an emerging company uh, having to wait before they can bring on uh, an enterprise client, you know, a couple of years to, to build that up. There's not a lot of uh, medtech companies that have the staying power to get there. So it, it is a very real challenge, but it's it's a necessary one because this information is very sensitive and uh, and we have to take it seriously. So how long has Second MD been around now? Second MD was founded in 2011. So this is our ninth year. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, we've we've been, uh, you know, we're, we'll double in size this year. We uh, literally onboarded another 90 enterprise clients in in the first quarter. And um, there's, there's a, an increasing awareness that uh, these issues 
again, is something that people want, that they highly value, and that they will use. And one of the things that I think has really propelled our growth is not only the financial results that we see and the clinical results uh, that we see, but also just the, the member satisfaction. You know, uh, there's something called a, a net promoter score, which is an industry agnostic way to measure customer satisfaction. And it ranges from negative 100 up to a positive 100. The average in healthcare is an 18. And some of the, the highest net promoter scores by companies like, um, you know, Ritz-Carlton and Costco and USAA and Nordstrom, they're in the upper 70s. And second in B's net promoter score is a 90, which is just blows me away. But it just speaks to the fact that when you can provide, when you can enable somebody who's dealing with something, whether it's an illness or an injury or they need to have surgery, and you can enable them to speak to a world-class specialist uh, who has all their medical records. They can do that from the comfort of their home without having to, to travel or sitting in a waiting room. It's just a, it's such a, a different experience from the traditional way of doing things that, uh, you know, that's what people are looking for. So coming up on your 10th year then, um, what have been the financial results for a second MD curbing that wasteful spending? Uh, how does Second MD end up bending the cost curve? And do you have any, you know, either conservative estimates or generous estimates for how a service like Second MD is addressing this issue of wasteful spending in general? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, if I look at the results for 2019, the most recent year for us, uh, we saw on average uh, across uh, the uh, you know, about 12,000 expert medical opinion virtual consults that we did, we see that uh, we saved uh, about $5,400 on average per consult. Now that includes ones where there was no cost savings and that includes uh, those where maybe the cost went up a little bit. But on average, uh, people are saving $5,400 every time they have a second MD consult, largely driven by uh, cancellations of unnecessary surgeries and high cost medications. Etc. But I'll give you, and it really depends on the case mix for a client. Musculoskeletal tends to be our highest area of use for most of our clients, followed by cancer, the neurology, uh, cardiovascular, GI, women's health. Those tend to be uh, in the top five typically for us. Uh, and, and the case mix will, you know, impact how much savings we have. But uh, one client, for example, that we started uh, with a year ago, and uh, this is a large national client. Uh, through one of our health plan partners, they, um, they, you know, we focus on musculoskeletal initially for them, our proactive outreach, and we, uh, they saved, I think it was 9% of their musculoskeletal cost actually were reduced. So 9% less musculoskeletal cost in 2019 versus 2018, when we were really the only thing different in that equation. And that's huge. Whereas most uh, healthcare cost trends are measured against, we can reduce your increase. Maybe instead of a 6% increase, we're going to make it a 4% increase. We actually saw a, a total reduction uh, year over year in those healthcare costs. And uh, so it's very meaningful. And then what has the demand been like for this service? Have you had to do a lot of um, personal marketing and content curation as a company to get the word out for Second MD? Have folks been searching for a solution like this, and so now that it exists, they're coming to you naturally? Um, and then which demographics are you seeing uh, coming to Second MD, and which are the most in need of that second opinion to curb unnecessary treatment? You know, interestingly enough, we're not seeing uh, any 
noticeable um, difference between the different industries that we serve. Again, blue collar, white collar, uh, all different mix of demographics, uh, you know, centrally located, uh, distributed out. Uh, it really is evenly distributed in terms of our, our client base. So I think this is a service that every population group out there has a need for. Uh, we are seeing a, a much higher demand in the use for our service. Um, you know, again, doubling each year, and that gets harder to do as you as you grow, as um, as you would expect. But we continue to do that. We've always had a very lean sales force, but it is getting easier and easier as we have now many years of data to show the results. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of testimonials of people who've used our service, and it's had a tremendous impact on their life and on the way that they view their employer. So that has made things a lot easier. We also now have a lot of the, the, the large national health plans that provide us to their own clients and uh, will resell us that way. So that's another been another distribution channel that's been quite successful for us. In the early days, it was tough. We would go and meet with the leaders of large organizations and say, uh, we'd you know tell them what we could do and they'd say, this sounds great, show me the results of you know, a client our size for the last two or three years and we'll sign up tomorrow. Problem is we didn't have those results in the early days. So we really had to, uh, to you know, work hard to get those initial clients. But it has, it's, it's really like a flywheel, just like it was with adding great uh, expert specialists to our panel. Now it's very easy. Uh, we, we can, within usually a day or two, sign up just about any doctor in the world that we want to sign up because they look at who else is on our panel. They speak to them. They hear about how uh, easy it is to work with us, uh, how enjoyable it is, and so we can now sign up those doctors very, very easily, and we're seeing that on the client side as well, as they can speak to our other uh, clients and see the results, and it's just really uh, a no-brainer of a decision for them. I want to wrap up the conversation by looking at something incredibly timely that I think is making the case for uh, telemedicine and telehealth. That would be COVID-19 and the pandemic we're dealing with right now. I think in many ways it is reaffirming um, some different aspects of innovation in many different industries. And I think one of those is the uh, critical necessity and usefulness, I guess, you know, utility might be a better, uh, better word, for medtech like telemedicine and telehealth, and I think Second MD falls into some of those categorizations. So, how is the current pandemic uh, affecting some of your business and some of your approach to getting the word out there for Second MD and the services you provide? And do you think that coming out of this pandemic, there might be a shift in public opinion, uh, either among physicians and among health healthcare professionals, or among patients, regular people? around the usefulness of a service like this? Yes, great question. I think this pandemic is a huge challenge for the nation, for the world. It is uh, thrusting virtual health and telehealth into the national spotlight, and it's really forcing people to utilize these services. Uh, and, and many folks around the country um, would have you know, been apprehensive about doing so before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, our, our specialists tell us that 70-80% of what physicians uh, can do could be done just as well, if not better, virtually. Uh, and yet, you see the adoption for virtual health being far below that at this point. I think this pandemic is going to significantly increase the number of people who recognize that uh, for most things that they're dealing with, seeing a 
a doctor or a, a, you know, a specialist, a physician, any kind of caregiver virtually can actually be much more convenient and just as effective. And I think as well, a lot of the providers out there who are being forced to deliver care this way are recognizing, wow, this really, uh, uh, this really does work. There, there's some things we need to solve for uh, the integrations, the administration side. But uh, I, I think the providers, it's also opening their eyes to that. From our perspective, we think in the mid to long term, it's going to be very uh, beneficial actually for the adoption of virtual health solutions like Second MD. In the short run, it has an interesting impact in that uh, a large number of the incoming cases for us are people that are undergoing um, you know, therapies and maybe they're considering an elective surgery or they need to have some kind of uh, surgery that is being, and those broadly across the board are being postponed. So in the very short term, we're actually seeing a fairly significant reduction in incoming traditional second MD consult volume. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing a, just a surge in demand for our medical certainty navigation services where our clinicians can help people uh, understand the risk around COVID-19, uh, what it can mean for them, how to you know, best deal with things for their own family. We see that just a, a tremendous increase in the number of clients that are asking us to actually consult with their leaders, with their uh, heads of talent, heads of security, their senior executives about their business continuity plans, uh, you know, when they could, uh, how long they should have their workforce out of the office, when they can bring them back in, how do they protect their people. So we have uh, specialists with the CDC, with the World Health Organization, uh, many great expert epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists that are helping advise uh, a significant number of the corporate leaders across the United States of America on how best to deal with this pandemic for their own workforce and their own business. And so that's not something that we were expecting a month ago, but we really had to stand that up um, because of client demand and so proud of our team that's worked tirelessly to do so. All right, Jason Melton, CEO of Second MD, thank you for joining us on the podcast and giving us your perspective on uh, this aspect of overspending in the American healthcare system. Like we said towards the beginning of the podcast, this is just one piece of a broader puzzle that looks to address the overspending we see as a nation spending the most for healthcare uh, out of any developed nation and addressing stuff like this where uh, the solution is really as simple as bringing in a second pair of expert eyes to assess your care can have large impacts, especially at scale. So I appreciate the insights. Looking forward to touching base again here in the future as we get out of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, maybe Second MD has some more developments in the future. We'll definitely have to chat about them. But Jason, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Daniel. Have a great day. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the podcast. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. There you can subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from a variety of different industries. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.